Recruiting Trailblazers is brought to you by Recruiter.com, the hiring platform that helps you hire like an expert. Recruiter.com empowers organizations of all sizes to recruit talent faster using virtual teams of on-demand recruiting experts, coupled with leading video, AI search, and curated job matching technology. Recruiter.com video can help shave on average 168 hours off your recruiting process without slashing quality of the hire. Visit video.recruiter.com and enter code RECRUITER1000, that's Recruiter with a capital R and the number 1000, to access the Recruiter.com video beta program for free. Again, that's video.recruiter.com and enter code RECRUITER1000. Coming to you from Silicon Valley, I'm Marcus Edwards, and I'm on the hunt for recruiting leaders, producers, innovators, and pioneers who've made their mark on the industry and can't wait to share their points of view. We'll tackle the tough topics and dig deep to find the answers you're looking for and some actionable advice you can take to the bank. So stick around and stay tuned and welcome to Recruiting Trailblazers. Okay, so this week on Recruiting Trailblazers, I had an incredible conversation with Tom Case, who is the head of talent at Cerebra Systems in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, They're building a new type of computer, by the way, optimized for AI work that contains the world's largest computer chip. Now, Tom has an executive search background, began in agency, went to Facebook, and then prior to Cerebrus was a talent partner at Intel Capital, the venture arm of Intel Corporation. The funny thing about this podcast, however, was that it was just supposed to be a planning session on the platform that I use to record podcasts, but it ended up being a fully fledged conversation. So we decided to publish it. And the conversation begins with Tom explaining to me what he's most passionate about as a recruiter and his desire to really work as an internal recruiter for a startup. Now, one final thing is that we were supposed to be recording this conversation next week because Tom has a cold currently, and so he's not at his absolute tip-top best. But you could have fooled me. I could barely keep up with him. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this one, and thank you to Tom Case. Um, So I think there's kind of different directions that we could go, but um, I'll I'll say that, um, you know, where it comes from for me is uh, I got into executive search um, I w- really wanted to work with startup clients. Uh, I found that really what I wanted was to work with founders, and I just couldn't figure out how to do that, you know, because when you work on executive search, you know, startups don't need executive search people. <clears throat> you know, they do when it's later stage. Um, but the fun bit is getting in with startups early. And that's why I moved to California was to do that. So I had this kind of interest and then executive search didn't, didn't kind of fit. Um, and so just in terms of looking how to do that, I've found very few people, um, that are sort of examples of that. Um, and then when I got to Intel Capital, and I was working with the portfolio and trying to help them with their problems. One of their biggest problems was finding really talented recruiters at an early stage to help them with the build out, you know, from 50 people to 250 people. And I think that's the crucial phase. You know, what you, what you haven't got in place by 250 to 300 people, you know, you're really struggling to claw back. So 
people that can take a company through that phase of growth, I think are, are key. Mm-hmm. Um, and even now, you know, and, and so at Intel, the, the, the challenge was both finding good people and invariably most of the startups had, had tried to hire someone. They hired them, they hired the wrong person or they treated them, um, you know, whatever, it didn't work out. Um, and so they kind of went back to what they were doing before. So it sort of interested me from that perspective. And now I'm in the role, I sort of see it and I, I get some of it. I, I, I see both this like phenomenal role and I see this really challenging role, which pushes a lot of people out. Right. Is Intel Capital the venture arm of Intel? Yeah, they're the corporate venture arm of, of Intel. So they have 300 companies um, and they have an operating team that, that goes out and tries to add value. And, you know, so I was their sort of first talent person. Like a talent partner role. Talent partner role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Was that fun? I mean, you, you're wearing a lot of different hats when you're being a talent partner, right? So it was fun because I got to do what I'm really fascinated uh, uh, by, which is working with founders. Yeah. But it wasn't fun in that, you know, like consulting, I found that you go in and you try and sort of sprinkle a bit of, you know, magic dust and hope that you can move a company forward. But these companies are so hard to move forward. You have to get in there um, and do something, you know, much more than make introductions or, you know, send a comp survey or, you know, whatever it may be. So I found myself then wanting to go back the next day and just start and just do three months with them or do six months with them. But to really help a, a, a company, it's complex. Um, and it's very difficult to kind of keep appearing and disappearing. Um, I, I totally understand that. And is that because, especially at the outset, do you feel that companies need to pay a lot more attention to putting together a really workable talent strategy that's going to see them through the next sort of 18 months, as opposed to this sort of like, hey, we need a CTO. Hey, we need a couple of engineers. Hey, it's like, that's very knee-jerk reactive recruiting, which really doesn't get anybody anywhere without some sort of like overarching talent strategy. Is that the angle you're coming from? I think it's the strategy, it's the process and it's the team. So um, the strategy is so that everybody knows where you're going and you can, you know, start to actually build stuff around that. If everything's reactive, then uh, it's not being hung on anything that's thoughtful. Right. It's just what happened in the meeting this morning. Exactly, exactly. Um, and who, who, who knows whether that's what you need for a year's time. Right. So, so you're hiring people that you have no clue whether they're ripe for, you know, for further down the line. Yeah, so your perception of talent strategy and how yeah. talent strategy is really a roadmap, um, an organizational design roadmap, plus a process roadmap, and plus, you know, tools and training roadmap. Y- yeah, it's figuring out what the, well, actually, you know what it is, is figuring out what you need to prioritize. Because if you go in with a, here are the six things we need to set a strategy around, I think you're missing the point. Startups don't have much resource. They need to double down on the single one or two things that will move the company forward. And so the strategy needs to be all focused around that. And I think that is one of the biggest learnings for me. I would have gone in with all of those things. Okay, what are we going to do in L&D? What are we going to do in comp? What are we going to do in retention? What are we, you know, but actually, you know, when you think 
th- think about it, you need to figure out what phase the company's in and what it really needs to double down on. You can't do everything. And so you create a sort of North Star with your strategy. And then I, I found the piece from executive search that no one kind of wants to do is the operations and the process. You know, no one wants to get their hands dirty in internships or hiring college grads or, you know, getting a database or, you know, figuring out how we interview um, or figuring out how we make offers or figuring out how you do compensation. You know, these are all pieces that in if you're using only agencies and talent partners to recruit, there's no longevity. You know, none of it is set around um, a, a sort of workflow. I think that's what it is. It's creating a workflow for the company. That's what it is. And that's what you say. You, you bring that from your executive search experience. No, I mean, that's the thing. That's the interesting thing. You don't learn, you know, you don't learn that in executive search. So that held me back for ages, you know, going into these jobs. Um, Actually, you just figure that out. And I don't think it's difficult, but I think you've got to be the type of person that can, you know, spin a couple of plates at the same time. And one plate is, you know what you're doing. And one plate, you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. And the important plate is the move the needle plate. Yeah. Um, And the process and operations plate is if you're a smart person and you know how to ask intelligent questions, then you can, you can figure that stuff out. And as an executive search or an agency recruiter, you know, I haven't had the experience you've had from an internal point of view, but I figured most of it out already without having ever crossed the bridge myself, because you know, I've spent years talking to people like you and, and obviously the operations and process piece has become more and more important to building a sustainable and uh, foundational recruiting team. Yeah. And I think that companies would come and ask me at Intel Capital, what database should I, you know, should I buy? And, and I would say, you know, here are the, here are the top two, but actually that doesn't make the selection that doesn't help them figure out you know, what they need. And you can't help them figure out unless you work at the company. So that's a good example of where as a talent partner, I just never felt fulfilled. Mm -hmm. I never felt like I actually helped the company achieve the kind of value that they need to, to, to move forward, whether it's a introduction. Well, I'd introduce someone, but they don't know how to recruit them. Um, I'd give them the comp survey but they don't know how to have the conversation with the VP of sales because they've never hired one before. I'd give them the list of um, databases, but I don't know the company well enough to be able to sit in that meeting and make an informed decision as to as to what system they should use or whether they just stick with one of the free ones for now. You know, you've got to kind of figure out, you know, when you upgrade and, you know, and, and things like that. So Yeah, and that depends so much on what you were saying earlier, which is, you know, what are your current priorities? Because if you overload a company with process at the outset, that's going to slow them down in other areas that they don't necessarily need to be slowed down in. So you might be better off for the first 10 people just using Google spreadsheets. Exactly. And I think this comes to the last piece, which is team, where you establish a recruiting team in a company. So you kind of you're establishing what recruiting is to that company. And, and, that, and that, I think, is, is hugely important. Um, and that sort of view, you know, that's kind of how everybody views 
recruiting you know both the value of it how much time they put into it how much time they put into improving themselves um you know to be able to recruit you know it's a very competitive world i think when you get into um you know fast growth startup space because if it's fast growth and there's lots of opportunity suddenly there's lots of companies doing a similar thing looking for the same kind of talent um and so i think you need to sort of set up the recruiting rhythm uh for uh you know for a company and again you can't do that as a talent partner what do you mean by recruiting rhythm well it's mainly you know how important recruiting is to a company and and how people you know are in recruiting type you know conversations and that's what you feel as a candidate you know when you're coming through the process you kind of understand if if um if people really care about the people um and i think that it takes the people in order to be able to do that and sort of select them and so you know if you build a recruiting team you are saying to a to a company um you know these are the people that are going to kind of fly the flag for recruiting and so you've got to get the right people to be able to do that and so that so that's really the problem with if you hire the wrong person into your first recruiting role or you hire the right person but you manage them in the wrong way and you lose them quickly suddenly the culture of recruiting in that company is really negative yeah i mean this is something that has occurred to me many many times which is as a recruiter there's nothing more frustrating and i won't name names but i was on a search for a a director of ta or a head of people for a pretty hot startup just before covid and I actually found some of the best candidates I've ever found and presented three or four of the very best candidates I've ever had the pleasure of presenting anybody. And I was supremely confident, but each one of them washed out because of a phenomenally poor candidate experience. And none of them even made it to the point where they were interested in receiving an offer because they felt so poorly dealt with. One of them was turned away and said, I'm so sorry, but he's actually been called into another meeting. Can you come back this afternoon? And she walked out and she said, you know, tell them where to shove it. And then the people who did make it into the process were just given short shrift. There was no process. There was no candidate experience. It was all buying and no selling. You know, it's like as an agency, how many times do I have to say to my client, do you understand what a passive candidate is? Okay. Do you understand therefore your responsibility and your commitment to being able to bring this person from not being interested in your company to being, you know, really wedded to the idea of working? Because that's your job now. Nobody gets it. Nobody gets it. And so that gets me feeling like I just want to get in there and properly sort this problem out. And I feel like the only way you can really do that is kind of inside out. You you know, you get in there and it's like, well, I want to go in there. I want to set the tone of recruiting. I want to be able to show the management team, you know, what building a a, a recruiting capability that's going to source all of the candidates, you know, for you and solve a lot of the talent problems. I want to show you what that can do. Um, and when you're on this kind of outside in, you know, you're hearing all of these problems and it kind of makes your, your heart bleed because, you know, they walk away from it saying, um, you know, recruiters are just so crazy difficult to actually recruit themselves. Like we've been, you know, there are companies that have been looking for recruiters for over a year and they sort of put it down to, you know, recruiters just being, you know, flitty. But I think in, in, in truth, it's that, um, they haven't been able to, um, figure out how they can attract the right person. And it's a sort of failing on 
on their side. And I think often companies fail to grasp how competitive it is. Uh, You may have found in that search, um, there aren't too many candidates. Um, there, There are a lot of companies looking for head of talent roles. And that and that says something where the, the the demand is much greater, I think, than the supply. And so I think it's there's both a hesitancy to go into the role from a lot of people that could do the role but aren't in the head of talent role right now. Um, and I think that there's a bit of an uh, lack of understanding on the company side in terms of you know what to hire and how to hire them. It is. It's an increasingly hard role to fill. The other bit that I think is interesting beyond candidate experience is how the nature of the recruiting process and the people who are driving it impacts the culture of the organization, which ultimately is the biggest mover of people, which I always say on the podcast. Culture, um, which is obviously defined by leadership and, and, and a lot of different aspects of the business and the values and the mission and how they're, how they're socialized within the organization. But at the end of the day, it's culture that moves people. It's not money. It's the reason people move in and out of companies and it's the thing that I end up spending, as a recruiter, I spend more time talking to people about the culture and the way they, they're treated. And, you know, are they inspired? Are they developed? Are they empowered? Are they appreciated? Are all those things in place for them to sort of enjoy the employee experience? Because at the end of the day, a lot of companies are doing quite well in recruiting, but none of them are doing particularly well in retention. Retention needs, I think, needs way more focus than it's currently receiving. And so this is it. So in, interestingly, then with retention, you know, you you work. Let's say you're working with a client that can't retain people. It's so difficult to know what the reason is. Um, and the, and again, that's another sort of example of where I feel like if you're on the inside. So a good example of this was last year where we hired a lot of people, um, a lot of amazing engineers, and we're starting to come up with some of the problems that you're citing, um, and. You know, I think only being on the inside, you can see, well, it's because you've got one manager to 20 to 25 people. And so you're hiring a lot of people, you're promising them a lot, but you're not really able to kind of focus on developing them. And as a startup, we're very flat, but there comes a time when I think you need to introduce that layer of like really top managers that can manage, you know, 10 to 15 people at a time. And so we, we hired seven or eight directors um, and that's where I think recruiting can make a big difference. You know, you push from the inside in terms of, I think I know what this is. Um, I think we need some really top leaders in here that can actually double down on 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 really developing these engineers and then start to think about, you know, um, a tech leadership structure or a, a structure for people coming through and being, you know, line managers. We know how difficult it is to hire engineering managers from outside. So if you don't get ahead of it early, you miss the chance to kind of build a pipeline of future managers. Um, and so, but but I think from a sort of outside in perspective, there are lots of things that you could, uh, like say from a talent partner might say, well, I think it might be, you know, culture is it's probably caused from this or it could be caused from this or you should speak, should speak to this person because they had the same problem. But none of it is really being in there and being able to use your judgment to say, you know, this is what the problem is. This is what we need to double down on over the next six to 12 months and solve the problem. And that's the gratifying thing about, I think, sort of taking the the role and being there on the inside is that you, you, you get beaten up a bit because it's your problem. As soon as you go in there and you're establishing recruiting, you're on the hook for everything that's recruiting. And I think that's the reason that people leave the job. You know, you're, you, it's, it seems like you can never do any right. 
but I think that, you know, as long as you know what you're doing and, and the value that you're adding, I think doing things like that can, can, can make a big difference to a company. And once it's done, you can look back and say, yeah, that was the right thing to do. Yeah. That's interesting <clears throat> as well, because when you think about traditional management and that layer of management, you don't necessarily think that that's the last thing to put in place, but it actually makes a lot of sense to do it that way round rather than the other way round, because you're serving the people who have already arrived at the team and, and you're retaining them because good people actually need good managers in order for them to be able to find their way in the organization and, and for those parameters to be set up in such a way that it allows people to understand what's possible and to have a career trajectory and to you know, be inspired and be developed on a daily basis. And most importantly, be appreciated. Because if you don't have that, if you're too flat, who's going to appreciate you? And I'm a big fan of the concept that appreciation means a lot more to people than just plain old dollars. Yeah. And if you have a programmatic, and I, I've been talking to some very interesting people in the industry of retention, which is kind of an expanding little like star right now. And I've begun to, I haven't begun to believe, I truly believe that if you can programmatically and systematically appreciate your teams for everything that they need to be appreciated before, obviously there's, there's a beginning and end to this, but you've got to remember their birthdays and their anniversaries and you've got to, you've got to celebrate little wins. You've got to, but the most important thing of all is to understand what appreciation means to them and how they like to be appreciated. So you don't just send everybody a $200 Amazon gift certificate. You get to know through like employee surveys, et cetera, how people like to be appreciated and you appreciate them in a way and a style that actually resonates with them that might not resonate with the person who sits next to them. And I think once you get into that, level of detail and into the weeds on appreciation, you can really start to drive retention in the right direction. Yeah, I think that is 100% true. And for us, it's, you know, we're building engineering teams mainly. And so I think that engineers are excited by the impact, you know, they can have by the size of the problem they can solve um, and the kind of level and, you know, level of impact and connection that they can actually see to, um, you know, to, to how that's affecting the company. Um, and so, you know, I think that's what these managers came in to drive. But the balance is managers, you know, great managers want to manage people. And so if you've only got a few people in each team, is it the right time to hire all the great managers? Or do you end up hiring a few subpar managers and then you have to hire more managers over the top of that? And that creates a, a really nasty cultural situation. So for us, we found it was better to actually wait until we were kind of bursting at the seams. And then we were developed enough as a company where we had the proposition to go out and hire people that are phenomenal. Um, and that was a, another learning for me. I think I was eager to get the managers in quickly because I'd seen it at Facebook. They don't manage more teams of more than kind of eight to 12 people. And we've got 20 people. But actually, with 20 people uh, to the right person, you know, they're able to, to sort of see this kind of massive untapped opportunity. Um, and, and what they are coming in to manage is significant enough. Yeah. So it gives you the ability to hire the superstars that you're after yeah. and the people with the kind of like career aspirations that could be met by what you had on offer. Yeah. And if you're a flat structure and you're bringing in managers, you got to make sure you bring in the right ones and you got to make sure that people see the value in going from flat to a management structure. 
Um, and I think that that's, that's kind of what we were able to do. But if you bring people in that aren't aspirational, it, you know, it pisses off the people, you know, that, that you currently have in the teams. And it, it, it means that the managers are, are on the hook to hire. So suddenly they are your frontline people that are hiring. You have to wheel them out every time and they can't hire. It's a real problem. Um, and then it bottlenecks because the CEO feels like they have to hire everybody because they've hired all these managers, but the managers still aren't hiring. So it's a kind of then a bad dynamic between the managers and the, and, and the CEO. So I think to kind of, um, you know, to, to, to get that harmony, you kind of lay the foundation of exceptional engineers. And then when the time comes right, you know, that you think you can hire some aspirational managers, then you go do that. And I think even taking it one step further, it's, it's how as an organization you frame management and what management actually brings to the table, as opposed to the old school sort of like, that's your boss and you better do what he says, because otherwise we'll be having a different conversation this time next week kind of thing. And so if you can reframe what actually bringing in a, a later layer of management is going to bring to the table in terms of helping people become the best versions of themselves, then it can be a very positive move to make. As long as you hire the people who have the similar sort of values are on the same kind of a mission and share those cultural commonalities as everybody else. Um, I don't want to get into a conversation right now about diversity and inclusion. I think it's important to have people from all different cultures but um, I think everybody needs to share the same values, you know, and it's become important to this era of employees what those values are and how they're represented within the organization. Yeah. And I think that diversity and inclusion is a, um, you know, it is a big topic for startups because on the one sort of axis, you're trying to <clears throat> do things as quickly as you can. You know, you've got to build enough value before you have to raise again. So you are under a, a, a time constraint there. But on the other hand, you know, you want to build the, the right, um, you know, a kind of diverse organization, which I, I think does take more resource and more time. And that doesn't, you know, jive super well with trying to bring in people as quick as possible. Um, so um, I think that that's one challenge that startups really have when it comes to uh, diversity and inclusion. And then I think to, to, to your point of values, uh, particularly within a startup that's driven by the by the top, you know, it's it's really driven by the CEO. I think the CEO role is the most critical role for diversity inclusion in a in a startup. Um, it's a little different with a bigger company. Facebook is a good example. When I was there, there were uh, six thousand people or, or, or more than that, and and there you can actually have a bottoms up approach to diversity and inclusion. <clears throat> you can have employee resource groups, you know, where provided you can get a bit of budget. They're run by the employees. Um, and so you're able to kind of create this um, sort of inclusive movement across the company. Um, and they're given the space and budget to be able to do that. So I think that that is, I've seen in startups, it's a, chal it's a challenge for diversity. Um, less, less so for inclusion, because you can, you know, you should still be able to try and build the right culture. But diversity does also feed into that. Without a diverse organization, it's really difficult to have um, the same kind of inclusive organization. But that's something that we struggle with, uh, you know, with a lot. But, yeah. but it's, we, 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 yeah. I think from a purely commercial standpoint, organizations need to be completely bought into the concept that a truly diverse employee population actually drives a more profitable outcome yep. because of all the different perspectives that you're bringing to the table. So yes, it's definitely harder 
to find the representation that you need from across the different diversities that you're, you're interested in bringing to the table. And it doesn't make it any easier for the recruiting team to do that. Um, but there are significant benefits to doing so. And, and I think, um, I think, you know, profitability is a pretty important point. Like, guess what? The companies who are the most diverse are, are doing extremely well as a result of that because of the, all the different perspectives that are, have been brought to the table. So that's pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. And I think in terms of this idea of, um, you know, if you, if you don't, you know, you lay the recruiting foundation, the key foundations um, to a company are laid, you know, within that 50 to 250 person kind of growth phase. That's, I really believe that. <clears throat> and the more diversity you have, the more diversity you recruit. I, I think that first of all, people are attracted to it, but also, um, you know, people with diverse perspectives, uh, you know, take that into their hiring. Um, mm. And so, and that, that, that kind of makes a big difference. And the problem is if you get to 250 people and you haven't thought about diversity, again, that's kind of one of those issues where you're, you're then really behind it. Um, it's, it's really then difficult to, to turn it around because you're still trying to grow as fast as possible, but you don't have as many advocates across the company or you don't have as many people that um, can, can kind of help you lead the charge. And so as a recruiting team, if you haven't strategically kind of made that important at the beginning, um, you know, when you get to sort of 250 plus people um, and it's still just the recruiting team banging the drum, um, it's, it's really difficult to move the needle on it. Yeah. You definitely need proper C-level support and buy-in across the whole organization early on to instill those values, those diversity values. What, what else do you think is, you've mentioned a couple of times about the 50 to 250, what, what are the key challenges in setting up your store correctly when you're moving from 50 to 250, which is a big move? And quite often it's the hardest move. Sometimes getting the first 20, 30, maybe up to 50 people, there's, there's a lot of momentum. Um, and then it becomes a bit of a struggle as some of the sort of like novelty wears off and, and then the organization becomes bona fide from an employer branding perspective. And people really start to understand what you're about in the, in the marketplace as a whole. So you better have done a, a quite a good job at building a culture that resonates externally. What are the biggest problems that you have to conquer there? The top priority is to get your fair share of really exceptional people. And I think that everybody talks about exceptional people and, you know, um, sometimes in a way that it's like we only hire exceptional people, but it's just not true. Um, there aren't that many exceptional people. <clears throat> um, and when you get one, they move your company, you know, 10x more than, than, than anybody else. So I think that that's, at least for us, that's the North Star. And so everything... Um, and, and so you can do that at the beginning because CEOs uh, and founding teams go to the people that they know to be exceptional, especially if they're experienced founders. Um, and there's um, there's a lot more draw, you know, for exceptional people when they get sort of getting tapped on the shoulder by someone that they know from before. The scary bit is then when you kind of jump off the cliff into, you know, how do we now duplicate that? How do we repeat? How do we scale that? How do we move from beyond the kind of non-scalable, which is, you know, this is the, these are the people that I've worked with in the past. And how do you now do that where you're going out and you're finding people completely from, from scratch? So right. How, you've got, you've run out of friends and family. You've run out of, of friends of family and you've run out of 
you know, stock Series A, Series B stock, you know, you're going into more of a, um, you know, kind of scale up sort of growth situation. So I think that you, um, you know, from a recruiting uh, perspective, you know, how do you go out and, and position and sell the company? Um, from a, um, you know, from a hiring perspective, how do you assess people? Um, you know, from a compensation perspective, um, you know, how do you continue to attract great people when uh, the economics of stock changes as a company grows? Those would just be a few things. But I think in short, it's how do you scale the practice of bringing in truly exceptional people as a startup grows? That's so interesting. Do you think that at that point, you also have to turn around as a recruiting leader and say, look, things are going to change in terms of the type of people we're going to start to bring in. And you've got to be open to a, perhaps a broader perspective now in terms of the people, because not everybody we're going to bring in is going to be your definition of a total rock star. Um, what we need now is we need to build, you know, foundationally and really sort of, you know, scale in a way that's, that's, that's organic, but at the same time, provides us with the, the ability to, to actually reach and bring in really good people. Okay. But maybe not all just total rock stars or rocket scientists, you know, do you have to re-educate your stakeholders to understand that? Do you think? So funny enough, I don't think it's a uh, recruiter's place to do that. I think that what you want to do is have the organization um, ask themselves the question um, as to whether they're hiring the right people. Um, and I think the way to do that is through hiring these exceptional leaders. And I think through hiring exceptional leaders that can have a, a smaller focus, they're able to double down and say, look, I've got this team. I've got to grow it to this. Mm -hmm. um, is there a way that I can... Um, layer this where we have like a certain amount of people that don't have as much experience, a certain amount of people that have experience in this narrow bucket, but that can be traded off by a certain amount of people with experience in this narrow bucket. I think as a recruiter, if you just say a blank statement, like we're going to change the type of talent, it's not really, um, that it, it, it's not linked to what you need to actually produce. I think only experts in their field they know what they need to build they know what they need to produce i think that, that that as a recruiter you can you can help the organization question it by saying you know does it have the right tools and is it set up correctly to be able to question it and i think if you're super flat without the right leadership you can't do that and so that that is what we did um and then i i think you can drive a bit of that conversation when you're in debriefs with candidates and you're now kind of in the weeds of like looking through what we were looking for, what we've got in front of us, and what do we know about them. I think then you can start to push people a little bit and say, you know, well, are we thinking about this from a long-term perspective? Are we thinking about this a little bit too kind of, you know, short-term? And so you can kind of push and probe on a on a day-to-day -day tactical basis. But I think in terms of a, a longer-term strategic, like type of talent type of thing, I don't think that's going to be for the recruiter to make the call on. But I do think that you can kind of build the fabric that can do that for the company. One of the things that I've faced is the conversation with the client where 
we're talking about the type of candidate that they're looking for. And when I hear you talk about this and we talk about the first 50 and then scaling to 250, the first sort of wave of people that you bring in, aspirational, yes, but also extremely accomplished and experienced and basically need to have done the job before and experienced or driven a similar benefit to the one that you're looking to achieve. Definitely a very important part of the first 50. So I'd say that's kind of low risk hiring. But then as you start to scale, I would start to encourage people to start extending the risk a little bit and looking for more aspirational talent in people who perhaps are on a trajectory, but haven't necessarily done it 10 times before, but are definitely trending in that direction. And I think that becomes a little bit harder as a recruiter to be able to read the future, but it's actually quite fun to look for those up and comers. And if you get the buy-in from your team to say, look, look where this person is headed more than look what this person has done, you can actually achieve a lot of wins that way too. Would you agree with that? I completely agree. And I was thinking back to um, a question that someone asked me once uh, in an interview, which I think is a great question, which is, what is your arbitrage? Okay, you've got a competitive market. This is just like investing. How are you able to find the gap that gives you an opportunity to find people that other people aren't going after? You know, what is the bit that you can uniquely go out there um, and, uh, and, and serve? And so um, a good example for us is it, it's not so unique, but we opened up an engineering site last year in Toronto. Um, and actually, there weren't many startups in, in our space, um, you know, doing that. And we've been able to hire 40 or 50 people uh, in the last 12 months. And these are in areas that we just couldn't hire in the Bay Area because uh, they were all in big companies. They were all highly paid and it was just too competitive to get them. And so that is a good example where you're thinking, well, what can we, you know, what can we do? We can't just not do it. That's so cool. That's a bit about the hiring process. I don't think gets spoken about enough, which is, okay, recruiting is going out and finding people with experience, you know, who match the needs of the organization. But what have we got, when you say, what is our arbitrage? What have we got that's really going to incent the people that we go after to go, wow, this could be an opportunity really worth taking a look at. But what is your arbitrage is a great question because it's like, what are we bringing to the table as an employer to get people to say, hey, This isn't just your average recruiter going, you know, we're an amazing company. We're looking for driven, dynamic software engineers. It's less boring than that. That's a great way to frame the recruiting conversation. How do we figure out what we're going to take to the market to get the people who we're reaching out to, that everybody else is also reaching out to, to raise an eyebrow and go, this could be worth my, my time and effort. Yeah. And it, and it changes. Um, and also, I think you can always ask, always challenge yourself with that question. Um, and that's a good one for diversity as well. Um, I, I think that, yeah, it is difficult, um, but you, um, you, you, you find as a recruiter, the most satisfying thing is when you go to someone uh, with a role and it kind of stumps them and they're so, kind of like, yeah, that's you that that actually is something that I'm really interested in. You know, often it can be connecting a group of talent with yourselves. They can't make that connection. You make that connection because you know what you really need. And then you go and find what you really need. And they may not know that they can apply their skills to your company. Yeah. And it's like recruiters need to spend much more time worrying about what's in it for them. What's in it for your candidates and creating 
a vision of that opportunity and sharing that up front because too many times recruiters just think this is just copy and paste. You know, this is what we're looking for. These are the duties and responsibilities. These, these are the outcomes that you'd need to drive. It's all about the recruiter and the brand. And it's never enough about what's in it for the individual, but great individuals and aspirational individuals need to be excited about what's in it for them. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. And you have to listen, you know, they're people people don't walk around with the same aspirations. So it's, this comes back to sales, you know, it's, it's, uh, you have to be intrinsically kind of interested, I think in, in what's on people's minds. And I think that, that that's what makes the best recruiters. They're not going to someone with, this is what our company does. You know, they want to know what's important to you and what interests you. And you know what? That's actually really difficult to fake. The best recruiters that I've met, um, they actually really care about that stuff. And they don't just care about it because they want to make a a, a hire. They care about it because you're a broker. Um, And unless you you, um, make the deal work work for both sides and not, not just the hire, you know, unless it's working in a year's time, you failed. So, you, you, you know, we, we hired 150 people last year. What scares me is what are those 150 people going to do this year? Are they the right people? And that's what's, fu- again, you know, coming back to, you know, being on the inside, that's kind of what you get to see on the inside is, um, is where you're actually kind of going with your work rather than the work sort of not being complete, you know, just, just because uh, someone, you know, just because you do a deal. No, I mean, the agency world is very metrics driven. And so recruiters who cross the bridge from the agency world to the internal world still have that kind of metrics mindset, which is like, how many, how many people have I heard? What's been the time to hire? You know, how many submissions have I made this week? Lots of numbers and boxes that need checking. A great recruiter doesn't sell an opportunity. A great recruiter spends most of their time understanding what are the needs, goals, desires of the candidate that they're speaking with, and then figures out if their opportunity intercepts that and brings yeah. that back to the table and reconciles that against what that person is genuinely looking for. And to have that in your heart is to be a good recruiter because at the end of the day, yeah. you're going to win friends and influence people by saying, this isn't right for you. This does not intercept your needs, goals, desires, and dreams. And it's not the right move for you. And, and I do that. And I feel great about doing it. I'll say, yep. this, this is not the role for you. But guess what? You've made a friend in me and I've made a friend in you. I really understand you and your buyer's gap, which is what I anecdotally call, you know, the difference between what they're doing today and what would really fire them up tomorrow. I think if you get to understand that and dwell in that space with your candidate, then you're going to become a much better friend and confidant to that candidate in the future. Yeah. And I think that if you've been around, if you've done this for a while, you've got it wrong a few times. And if you get it wrong, it feels awful. And I can think of one example where I got it wrong and I pushed someone super hard to to relocate from California to, to the UK. Um, and they left that role after three months and it lives with me now, you know. Um, now, I mean, he's off doing, you know, good stuff and I, you know, stalk him on LinkedIn and, you know, may, you know, kind of see how things are going. But I, I, I pushed so damn hard for that placement um, and I learned such a big lesson. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough, especially tough when you're starting out in this business, because especially on the agency side, you're driven by the ideal of closing 
Deals. Yeah, it's not the right way to look at it. Deals the wrong word. It's not the right way way to look at it. I think if I went back to an agency now, I would take the, you know, one to two year period after making a placement so seriously with my client. Mm-hmm. And I'd be checking in to see how, you know, how that person was performing and what can we learn from it and all of that kind of good stuff. Yeah. As long as you had a good client who had a good interview process, because I think it's their responsibility to hire the right people, as well as it's our responsibility to introduce the right people. It is. It is. I will give, I'll give you one story though. So um, our CEO is, is probably our biggest asset for selling. Um, he's incredible. And speaking of this idea of like listening to what's important to people, um, that's what he does. So the first time I spoke to him, I was not, you know, going to go and uh, leave. I was at Intel and I was working for a startup that Intel had bought and I was working at Intel Capital with lots of startups. So to me, I was kind of living my startup dream. And uh, after a while, he just said to me, but Tom, you're not working for a startup. And I have to say, it just rocked me, you know. Uh, really? Yeah, because I, I thought I was doing, I thought I was there and I thought I was kind of working. Um, and, and so the more I explored this, I then spoke to some of the founders and CEOs of startups within the Intel Capital portfolio. And uh, I asked them, you know, do you think I should do it? And their, their advice was, if you're not working for a startup, you know, you don't, you, you don't, you, you can't understand the challenges. Um, and so that, that was, that was it. At that point I was like, I'm all in, I'm going to go and do it. And I, you know, I, I think it's a very good experience for people to do. And I, I, I kind of, I think there's a load of talented people in that I've met that, that would kind of stick more in the executive search realm. And maybe that is a great place to be at the moment. So I'm not, not knocking it, but I think some people don't take the jump because they don't think it's sort of right for them. And I think it's a, a great career option. Yeah. I mean, clearly you're driven by it and, and it's worked out extremely well for you. And your mindset works extremely well under those circumstances. So good for you, Tom. Um, thank you so much for coming on Recruiting Trailblazers. And obviously we'll keep in touch and speak again soon. It's a pleasure. Great speaking to you, Marcus. Cheers. Okay. Cheers. Bye.